Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to see you. And you all know that I have, you know, some favorites who come on the show once in a while. And I have to say that this person is an all-time favorite of mine. Let me tell you about Dr. Helen Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a biological anthropologist and senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. She is chief science advisor to Match.com. How cool is that? Uh, Dr. Fisher uses brain scanning fMRIs to study the neural systems associated with the sex drive, with romantic love, attachment, rejection, love addiction, and the long-term issues surrounding partnership and happiness. She has written six books on lust, romance, and attachment, now sold in 25 countries, among them Why We Love, Why Him, Why Her, and Anatomy of Love, second edition. Dr. Fisher is currently studying the biological basis of personality and partner compatibility. Uh, Dr. Fisher appears regularly on national and international television, radio, print, and podcasts. She is a TED Talk all-star with more than 12 million views of her TED Talks, and she was chosen in 2015 by Business Insider as one of the most 15 amazing women in science. And I would say she is one of the 15 most amazing people in science. So welcome, Dr. Fisher. Oh, thank you, Rob. And make sure you call me Helen because we're friends. And uh, but thanks very much. You got it. You know, I um I have so long admired your work, and in particular because you come from a biological perspective, and and that's very different. Can I just ask before we get into the issues, how does an, someone who studies anthropology or even biological anthropology, how did you become a sex expert? How did that become your area of of uh, real focus, and and how does that relate to how we view sexuality from that perspective? Well, first of all, I'm an identical twin. And as an identical twin, I've always been, people always ask identical twins, do you like the same food? Do you have the same friends? Do you have the same cavities in your teeth? You know, so from a small child, I realized that my twin sister and I shared a great many things. And I've always been interested in why we're all alike. A lot of anthropologists talk about the Navajo as opposed to the Hopi or the the Thai as opposed to the Bangladeshis or whatever. And I'm interested in why we're all alike. I'm interested in human nature. And so when it came time to, to do my PhD dissertation, I began to think to myself, if there's any part of human behavior that we all share, 
these basic brain systems, I thought, for the sex drive, for feelings of intense romantic love, and for feelings of deep attachment. Now, people in different cultures are going to express the sex drive differently. Uh, they're going to maybe look for different things in a romantic partner. Maybe they're going to attach in different ways with different values. But the bottom line is these three basic brain systems sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment we all share as human beings. So I started there assuming that at least this was a safe way to look at that human nature. You know, we had a discussion about this, you may not remember, but we were sitting on a couch in Las Vegas. Oh, that's a whole thing to say in itself. We were sitting, Helen, on a couch in Las Vegas, and we were talking about feminism. And you said to me, the feminists don't like me very much. And I said, why is that? And she said, because you and I were having a conversation about how men's brains and women's brains are so different. And especially around the arenas of sexuality where men can compartmentalize more, women tend to want more an emotional connection. And you said to me something, well, the feminists don't like me because they assume that I believe that women can't be like men. And that's true because they're women. And I remember that conversation. And, and it, it strikes me now as you talk about looking for the similarities in us as human beings. Yes, I wrote a whole book called The First Sex, The Natural Talents of Women and How They're Changing the World. I mean, for millions of years, men and women did different jobs. And natural selection uh, selected against those that didn't do a good job. And we involved some gender differences. I mean, men are on average, and this is just on average, not even on average. When you look at the very top of the pole and the bottom of the pole, there's more men who tend to be good at math, engineering, computers, mechanics, and women tend to be better at all kinds of, uh, oh, they're better at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice. They tend to see the big picture. They're synthetic. But on the other hand, men vary and women vary. And I think there's so much misunderstanding. And a lot of these feminists, they just don't understand that they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Bottom line, Women come into our modern world with a whole host of great traits that will really help society. I mean, I've always liked it's a it's a bit of a, a variation on of from the, what the poet Ted Hughes said. He said, "Men and women are like two feet; they need each other to get ahead. We evolve together, but we're not exactly alike." And there's so mis many misunderstandings. I mean, for example, men fall in love faster than women do. They fall in love more often than women do. Men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. And men want sex um, sooner in their partnership than in a relationship than women do. But men are more likely to regard sex as a stepping stone to a real partnership. So yes, they want it sooner, but not necessarily for the reasons that people assume. It's not just philandering or, you know, just, you know, hit and run. It's it's basically a hope to use sex partnership to connect. And, you know, it's, I mean, if we constantly, I mean, a lot of these feminists, they're fighting the last war. And I understand that. I mean, in Darwin's day, people really thought that women weren't as smart as men. Well, that's ridiculous. There's all kinds of smart women. But the bottom line is, you know, the biology is the biology. Bottom line is both men and women have some tremendously effective traits and we need to put our heads together. But to pretend that we're exactly like is factually incorrect. Or to say I can be more like one gender or the other. I need to be more like who I am rather than aspiring to be more like a man or more like a woman. I think I get that in terms of healthy men and women in the world who are choosing, who are cis men and cis women. But you had said something to me and I saw it in your description about love addiction. And I thought, boy, I can't tell you how many questions I got about that. You know, Dr. Fisher, we finally have an everywhere except the United States, a, a diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. 
And you and I know that we've needed to be able to look at compulsive sexual behavior for a long time, but it really isn't until porn and the internet that we saw the extent of the problem. But love addiction is another arena. So sex addiction, okay, we have a diagnosis, we're kind of getting that. We'll get subcategories, maybe porn addiction. But what is love addiction and, and could it ever be a diagnosis? And, and what does it mean? Well, you know, I'm just so glad that we're starting there, uh, Rob, because I can't convince anybody. And we found it in the brain. I mean, first of all, we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproductions, sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. I think all three of them can be an addiction. You can be a sex addict who's constantly on the porn or constantly driving around to the red light district or whatever they're doing. And love addiction is, is a very different thing. I mean, you know, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, and they die for love. It's one of the most powerful brain systems that mankind has ever evolved. And I think it evolved for a very particular reason. Sex drive got evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. You have sex with somebody you're not in love with. Romantic love enables us to focus our mating energy on just one individual at a time. And the third brain system of attachment evolved to enable us to stick with this individual at least long enough to raise a child uh, through infancy together as a team. So we call romantic love a survival mechanism. And when you look in the brain, what I and my colleagues have done is we've put 15 people who have just been horribly rejected in love in the brain scanner using fMRI. And we found several things, but most important, we found activity in a little brain factory called the nucleus accumbens brain region becomes active with all of the addictions, all of the substance addictions like heroin or cocaine or alcohol or nicotine, all the behavioral addictions like sex addiction or uh, gambling. And um, the difference, I think, between romantic love and these other addictions, and I can't get anybody to believe me on this one, but I've written about it a lot, is that actually a, a romantic love addiction can be a very positive addiction instead of a negative addiction. Because when you're madly in love with the right person at the right time, <laughs> with the right vision share with this individual, the mere fact that you are so focused on them that you would live or die for them is probably an adaptive mechanism that evolved long ago so that people could overlook um, all the issues involved and focus on this individual and form a partnership and send their DNA into tomorrow. So as a matter of fact, the little factory that gives you the basic feelings of romantic love lies way at the base of the brain near the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive. Romantic love drives you to form a partnership and send your DNA into tomorrow. So we call it a survival mechanism when it's right, it's very right. But when it's wrong, it's a disaster. I want to interrupt you for a question um, about that. You know, I certainly see more uh, women talk about love addiction than men when they're coming for help. And in doing a lot of residential treatment, we would find out that a good percentage of the women in an eating disorder program would also end up with a sexual romantic problem. And all of that stemmed from complex early trauma. But when you talk about eating and sensuality, I mean, they're some of our earliest experiences. I would imagine that wounding has to occur around that time in order for us to end up in problems in these arenas. Yeah, it's interesting because you are a, a sexologist and a psychologist, and and I that's fine. But I would actually say that it's not just your childhood that we were were born. No matter where you grew up, Highlands of New Guinea, out of Mongolia, 
or New York City with romantic love being an addiction, uh, a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. Now, as you were saying, I think there's some people who handle it much better because they had the right kind of childhood. I'm not saying childhood doesn't play a role, but I'm saying that this is something that, that we inherited, a tremendous drive to fall in love with somebody and a real horrible experience at rejection. And what have you lost when you reject and when you've been rejected? You've lost, well, your daily habits, your daily rituals, your daily routines. They're gone. Lost uh, your family, your dog, your cat, your children. Uh, You may have lost friendships with your neighbors. Uh, Your various holidays are all uh, in question now. But what you've really lost is a partner to have babies with. And if you've already got that partner and you're rejected, you've lost a parenting partner to help you rear your children. So you're threatened with sort of genetic extinction when you've been rejected in love. And no wonder we're so bad about it. And we've either lost somebody who you're going to have babies with and send your DNA on tomorrow, or you've lost a partner to raise the babies that you've got. So no wonder we suffer so badly. And by the way, in every culture on earth, this is just not in the United States, and all kinds of people who had a very fine childhood uh, can end up being screwed up around love. Oh my God. Nobody gets out of love alive, Rob. <laughs> but it's how you handle it. So, so I have a question based on what you, what you just said, because I know that uh, the, the gay people, the homosexual folks, you know, I'm one of them, will begin to say something like, well, but we're not necessarily going to have children biologically. And my friend Stan Tatkin would say, you know, two people together without children will live longer, be more creative, be more successful just because they're a couple. So is there a biological underpinning for coupling that does not, or remaining couple that doesn't necessarily involve uh, the goal of passing on your DNA? Absolutely. I mean, even though that was the initial evolutionary purpose of it, I mean, you know, I have data on 45,000 Americans. It's a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. singles. And there's a good percentage of them are gay. And we study the gay every single year. And frankly, I don't think they're very different from straights. Everybody else thinks they're so different. I, for example, I mean, gay people feel disgust the way, you know, they feel curiosity and they fall in love. I mean, even though they're not, the purpose is no longer to have babies. Uh, I mean, I didn't have children. I didn't want to have children. I happen to be not gay, but um, I've fallen in love many times in my life, and I've felt senses of deep attachment. So just because these brain systems evolved for initial purposes a long time ago doesn't mean that we don't all share them today. And I tell you, gays fall in love just as often as straights do, and I suffer just as much. Yes, we do. You know, I have a little story for you, Dr. Fisher. I, I, uh, I've done a lot of Me Too groups lately and sat with a lot of men and women, talk, really therapists, talking about those issues for themselves. When I talk to women about gay men, women therapists, oh, I feel safe with them. I really enjoy them. They're not like not like straight men. I never feel threatened. And, and I thought, well, you ladies aren't around us gay men when there's a couple of us hanging around and see someone cute on the street. Because we may not catcall, but we're like, look at the butt on him. Look at the arms. We are just like every straight man, only it's not directed toward the women. I hear you giggling. Absolutely right. You know, one of the things that I say is when, you know, studying gays in the street, at this point, when I put people in the machine, I'm not studying who you fall in love with. I'm studying how you feel when you love. And there's a great deal of evidence that gays feel exactly the same way and you know because we all inherited basically the same brain you know very similar i mean i've never met two people who are exactly alike 
But the bottom line is I'm, I'm studying and so are you, basically brain systems that uh, we all share. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So I have a question when you talk about love gone wrong, you know, we're talking about addiction and choosing wrong partners and, but what happens? And and the other piece you talked about is the kind of the role of sex and how important it is in a relationship. And I know we're going to talk about that. My question is kind of when people have come out of difficult times and they are facing a relationship that's had challenges, how do they begin to celebrate sexuality? In fact, I guess I need to go back and say, why is it important that, I mean, couples who love each other, they don't have sex. I know couples who do have sex. What is the big deal and how do you see it as being important in coupleships? Well, uh, first of all, I think the most important thing is that you both share the same degree of interest. I mean, that's apparently one of the biggest arguments in relationships. I mean, if, if, not, if nobody's interested in sex, perfectly fine. If both are terribly interested in sex, that's great too. But if one really wants it and the other one doesn't, uh, then you got a real problem. You've got a problem on both sides. Both feel rejected. I mean, one feels hammered, uh, you know, uh, to perform, and the other feels uh, abandoned. So, But why is sex important at all in a relationship if not to have children or children already there? Why do we go on and continue to have sex if not for the goal of, of procreation? What, what does it mean for a coupleship? Why bother? I mean, it's fun, but why bother? for many good evolutionary reasons. Uh, sex is good for you. With the right person at the right time, it's really good for you. First of all, just to begin, it um, can trigger the release of all three of the of the brain systems. When you have sex with somebody, you're going to drive up the testosterone system and want more sex. So the more you have, the more you want. Any stimulation of the genitals in gay, straight, men, women, whatever, any stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can push you over the threshold into sustaining romantic love or falling in love. And with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin linked with feelings of, of attachment. Does that happen if someone's just masturbating? If someone's just pleasuring themselves, do they still release? I think they do. I think they do. I've, I've wondered this myself, and actually I did stumble on some data that I do think that, yes, it does occur when you're masturbating. But what you don't get when you're masturbating is all the hugging and the, and the kissing. Uh, there's other things that happen. When you have sex with somebody, it uh, drives up the endorphins for pain relief. Pain threshold goes up as much as uh, 10%. It gives you growing skin. Um, it boosts the immune system. It's good for heart rate, respiration, and blood pressure. It promotes sleep. It drives oxygen to the brain, and it elevates mood. There's a wonderful article. I don't know why people don't know more about this. Maybe you do. But in seminal fluid are a great many really um, healthy components. And there was this wonderful study out of Buffalo in which they found that when a woman receives seminal fluid from a man, it's actually as good as these basic antidepressants. So 
also good for the muscles. It's good for the bladder. It's good for the sense of humor. And if you are laughing with somebody and hug, when you're hugging them, you're driving up the oxytocin to create calm and attachment. And if you laugh with them during and around sex, that too drives up the dopamine system. And so, wait, is the is the goal to feel? Do we have the sex so that we can feel good? I, I'm talking about the not the orgasm part, but well, I mean, just the whole idea of sex. And do we do that with the goal of altering our brain system to feel differently or is that a result of it's a result uh, of it and and that's what drives us to do it again is all that stuff that comes up when we do it all those wonderful feelings if you feel attached to somebody you're going to be a better partner and if you feel more romantically in love with somebody you're going to stick around and partnerships are really positive i mean a good relationship, a good positive relationship, lowers blood pressure, reduces cholesterol and cortisol, sustains memory and mood. It's just very apparently, I mean, I'm not a specialist in this, but what I have read is that people who are in long time good partnerships, uh, positive relationships, can live as much as five to seven years longer. And they just live healthier lives. We were built to form pair bonds. And drive and feelings of romantic love and feelings of deep attachment all evolve to sustain uh, these partnerships. So so if, if we were built to build partnership, and I agree with you, and some people say, well, I don't have to get married to be in a commitment to be happy. No, you don't, but you will be happier if you do. You know, I mean, 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. 97% do not. People do. It's a hallmark of the human animal that we pair up to rear our children. We will go from one partner to another. Uh, We probably have a series of partnerships during the course of our lives. But you were saying just now, you were saying, well, people will say to you, well, I don't need a partnership to be happy. That's true. I think all of us go through periods in our life when we think, you know, I'm done with that for the moment. I'm having a really good time just seeing my friends. I don't want the complications. I don't want to catch feelings. Fine. But the vast majority of people on this planet, everywhere on earth, at some point in their life, fall madly in love and form some kind of partnership. And the great many of us, when these partnerships break up, we eventually recover. And sure enough, we go out and form a new partnership with somebody. So the brain is built to heal. Uh, one of the things what we, that we found in our brain scanning studies is that romantic love can be triggered almost instantly. It's like a sleeping cat. Boom, it can be wakened instantly. But attachment grows slowly. We've found this in the brain. Romantic love goes fast, but uh, but uh, can be triggered instantly. But uh, attachment grows very slowly, and it's a sticky substance. It sticks around, even though you don't like somebody anymore. I'm really glad you said that because so many people write me and say, "I'm so angry at him, and we left three years ago, and I don't know why I'm so sad all the time. I shouldn't be." Because you're still attached to that person, and even though they've gone away, and you're angry, and there's still a part of you that stays connected. Yeah. I remember a girlfriend, she'd been married, I think, 57 years. She said uh, to me of her husband, she said, you know, sometimes I hate him, but I always love him. Absolutely. And I remembered, there's something I wanted to ask you about partnerships, which is, you know the work I do. I work with people who have um, compulsive and addictive sexual behavior, compulsive and addictive porn problems, and, and really struggle with deep patterns of misguided intimacy, love addiction, all of those things, sometimes involving drugs. And you know, when I'm listening to you, what really comes to mind is what I'm treating over and over again is people who, for whatever reason, are unable to healthfully pair bond. 
And they come to me because they're stuck in a solo activity or they're stuck with multiple partners or they're stuck being unable to focus on one partner. But it's all, almost all the work I do is really about people trying to come together and not being able to do that or not being able to stay together. And so what you're saying, I think attachment, love, and passion is a driving force. When it turns into addiction or love addiction or whatever those issues are, it's not that their desires, what they want, and their great need to have those things, it's wrong. It's the way they try to approach them that's the problem. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that has to, to do at least partially with their childhood and their experiences. You know, I mean, yeah, we have a drive to form attachments and to fall in love and, and the sex drive, but those are all drives. But some people can't do it. They try and try, like your love addicts. They try and try, and they and then maybe some of them give up. And how can you, you know, how do we give hope for people who, who seem to be love addicted, who seem to find the wrong partner? Who and I've worked with many women, Doctor Fisher. Who, oh, sorry, Helen, who just say to me, um, I've had forty-five-year-old women say, I'm giving up on love. I'm giving up on sex. I've had all the wrong partners. I'm done with this. It's too painful, and they mean it. And I'm thinking that's no different than sex addiction. It's just the opposite end. Absolutely, they're done with attachment. Now, my guess is that those people have a dog uh, and animals and, and, the, and they have friends and they have family and they've got very busy lives and they've had bad experiences and they may even have probably had children and passed on their DNA and they've got very busy with children or grandchildren and, and far out as long as they're not suffering. If they're suffering, then they go to you and that makes sense. <laughs> we do our best. You know, you've been writing a lot about this, uh, uh, the COVID period and people being in a very different space. And yet people still want to date. People still want to mate. I, I actually wrote an article recently about, you know, my challenges with some of the hookup apps, because I don't think this is a great time to be marketing, you know, going to some stranger's house and having sex when I have to wear a mask to get in my car. But <laughs> nonetheless, everyone still wants to love everyone. So what, I mean, what is going on? Why are you writing about this? What are you seeing and feeling? Yeah. Well, uh, I wrote a couple articles for the New York Times and I think it's actually a very good time uh, to find romance. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How could that possibly be? We're all stuck in our houses or coming out into the world, mostly living on computers. How could it be a good time to find love? Yeah. Um, for the following, well, first of all, we are mammals and we will come out and we will get back to kissing and hugging because that, because that's, that's the species that we are. But the bottom line is there are some real advantages, uh, to this lockdown. And there's four basically. Uh, foremost, people have time to date. They're not commuting to go to work. Friends and family after work, they have time to date. They also have something to talk about. Most first dates are pretty chit-chat, just, you know, where'd you go to school? What kind of music do you like? And now there's a great deal of self-disclosure. They're saying how they feel. They they just, they feel trapped. They feel disappointed. They feel hopeful. They can't wait for this or that. They And that self-disclosure, it really triggers more intimacy and romance and attachment faster. So they got enough time to talk. They've got something to talk about. They're more inclined to self-disclosure. And two of the biggest problems of early first dating are gone. And first of them is sex. When you go out on a, on a date with somebody for the first time, you know, you're always in the back of your head, should I kiss him? Should I kiss her? Should I hold her hand? Should I walk her home? How do I handle this? It's gone. It is gone. The other thing that's off the table is money. You don't have to decide, am I going to, what, should we go to a cheap uh, cafe and have a, have a coffee or are we going to go to an expensive bar? Uh, who's supposed to pay? Do I offer to split the bill? Money is off. Sex is off the table. They got 
to date. They got something to talk about, more self-disclosure. And sure enough, we've got the technology to do it now, which is this FaceTime and video dating. And so what I'm really seeing now, actually, is people getting to know somebody before the kissing starts. And in many respects, that's not like, that's pretty similar to Jane Austen's day when they spent a lot of time talking to somebody before they actually went to bed with them. So I think what we're seeing is a new, the rise of a new stage in the courtship process. Today in America and many other places, people are meeting on the internet. And then prior to this pandemic, they were going out and meeting in person. But now there's an intermediate stage. They're meeting on the internet, then they're talking often for a good period of time on the internet where they can see the person. You learn a lot by looking at somebody before they go out on the first date. So the bottom line is they're going to kiss fewer frogs. They're going to get rid of the frogs before they go out on the first date. They're going to save time, money, energy. Um, sex is off the table. Money is off the table. And by the time they actually do go out, they're going to have fewer dates because they're going to weed out people before that. But when they do get out on that first date, it's, it's already, they already know they want to kiss the guy. They already know that they want to go to the fancier bar, spend their money, spend their time, expend their energy. So first dates are going to become more and more meaningful. They're going to be fewer of them, but they're going to be more meaningful. You know, and maybe this generation that has been so separate might need to be now learning more skills of connection, but not as scary as the ones that might occur in person. So I certainly support what you're saying. It makes sense. But I have to say, Dr. Fisher, you know, I think you were one of the most liberal people I know about sex, period, and not not as a political statement, but as a scientific one. And yet I hear you saying, kind of sounding like my, like my grandmother, like, you know, I think you get to know someone before you date and slow it before you have sex and slow it down. And I mean, that wasn't the easy so that I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s, you know, it was like, hey, you know, you get to meet people after you have sex. And certainly in this generation with all the internet stuff, people are sexting before they have coffee. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in my studies called Singles in America that I do with Match, 34% of singles have had sex before the first date. And everybody's so horrified. I'm not horrified at that. I think it's a sex interview. It might actually make dating easier. Well, uh, I, I'm not in the good bad business. Just because I say that we're talking before sex, I mean before the first date, doesn't necessarily mean that I endorse it, good or bad. I'm just saying that we're seeing a new stage in the process, which is talking on the internet before you go out and you meet in person. And I do think that it enables people to weed out, you know, the frogs um, before they get into a situation that is a little difficult for them. And I'm, I'm sure that's an anthropological, biological term is to weed out the frogs. <laughs> well, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, what we're seeing really in America today is a new courtship. I call it slow love, extension of the pre-commitment stage. What we're really seeing in America today is awful lot of people are starting out, oh, we're just friends, we're just friends. And then they move into friends with benefits. You learn a lot in the sheets, not just how somebody makes love, but can they listen and be kind? Can they be giving? Do they have a sense of humor, etc.? And so they're having their sex before the, and then they go out for the official first date, then tell friends and family, then they begin to court regularly, then they move in together, and later they marry. We're marrying later and later and later. All of my data, I've looked at the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations at 80 cultures. The longer you court, and the later you marry, the more likely you are to stay together. Do you mean later in life or the longer in the dating relationship? The longer in the dating relationship. In other words, 
In the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, people who marry who are 28, 29, 30, or even later, the marriages are more stable. Divorce is highest among people who are about 24, 25. People who marry young and with a very short courtship period are more likely uh, to divorce. And the later in your life, I mean, in terms of age, I mean, years ago, women were married at age 20 and men at age 22 and now women are, are married at almost age 28 and almost age 30 and that gives you uh, almost another 10 years i mean eight years whatever but those teenage years as well to learn about sex to to learn about romance to dump people that don't work to get dumped by people who didn't work you know frogs and <laughs> and learn more about yourself and so it sort of stands to reason that the older you get the more likely you are to make the right kind of decision that um, brings you to a healthy long-term partnership now i'm not necessarily endorsing a long-term partnership i mean there's some relationships that should end because they they're not they're not good for anybody and you won't live longer and you won't be happier and you won't be more creative. Hey, before we go, because I know that you have a timeline and I'm aware of that. I know you've got places to be. You've written so many books and I know that you're a big smarty pants because you just are. You're you're so smart. But I wonder, is there something that you think people could read pretty casually about the basics of love and sex from your perspective that they could grow from? Something not written for the the science types, but more just for regular folks. Well, all of my books are for regular folks, and they sell all over the world because they are for regular folks. My academic articles, I just do, do very different. It's a very different writing style. It's a very different approach. And so. You should tell some of my peers that, Dr. Fisher, whose writing I cannot read. Yeah, same with me. If people just want to understand the really the basics of gender and love from, from an anthropological, biological perspective, what would be a good book of yours that they might pick up? I think the book, um, well, Anatomy of Love is my second edition, is my most recent book. But um, I think if they really want to understand personality and why you fall for one person rather than another, and how to negotiate relationships, the book that I would recommend is is called Why Him, Why Her, and it talks about four very broad styles of thinking and behaving, uh, linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and systems in the brain. It was very helpful for me uh, in my own relationship. And I guess the second book uh, would be Why We Love, those two books. And as I say, they're all nickel words. And I'm a big word person, and and I once read long ago, you know, that you you don't want the big words anyway. You want the little ones that make a lot of sense to a lot of people. So um, (laughs) it's so true. Dr. Fisher, you are such a treasure, and I really hope we get an opportunity to do this again. And let me ask one more thing. If people want to learn about your work, is there a place online that they can find your information about you? Absolutely. I am all seem to be all over the internet. My speeches are all over. I'm in TED All-Star, so you can see any of those speeches. You're just an all-star. Well, thank you for this, sweetheart. Um, um, but, uh, but the bottom, I have two websites where you can really learn something. My brain scanning partner and I have a website called the www dot the anatomy of love dot com and uh, that goes into a good deal of explanation and the other website is helenfisher.com f-i-s-h-e-i-n-o-c and there you will see an amazing person doing amazing work i'm so grateful dr fisher i hope we have you back and thank you for what you've shared with us today you're a sweetheart rob and i learned something too that's always a blessing thank you 
Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.